Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Average Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, uh, part two of an apologetics approach to church history. And Ken, on the last podcast, you kind of brought us very quickly through 500 years of church history. I got a little dizzy on that ride. Nick got so much out of it. Uh, but now we're going to continue uh, on this podcast. Maybe you could give a bit of a recap why we're doing this uh, and where we're going today. Yeah, I, I think that last program probably was kind of taking a drink from a fire hydrant. There are a lot of people and ideas coming your way. Um, the reason I'm doing this, uh, Joe and Dave, is I, I don't think we often think about church history in terms of apologetics. That is, what can we learn in terms of defending the faith? How did people in the earliest period, how did they go about defending the faith? What did they have to say about uh, biblical authority and biblical reliability? And how did they confront the challenges of their time? Because you know, in our day, it's not easy always to deal with atheists or uh, skeptics of, of, vari of various varieties or people in other religions. And so I like to kind of pick the brains of some of these people in the Christian past and, and try to learn as much from them as we possibly can. I remember one scholar said that a person who doesn't understand history is like a person without a memory. Mm. And uh, that, that kind of struck me, um, you know, because Christianity is so deeply tied to history. So last time we looked at the person of Jesus and kind of gave an overview of his consequential life and existence. We then introduced three particular eras, the apostolic era, the apostolic fathers who followed the apostles, and then we introduced some of the earlier church fathers. What I'd like to do in this program is I'd like to extend that discussion of the church fathers and to actually talk about the individuals who are known as the doctors of the church and then take us into the Middle Ages. So we're going to cover a probably another 500 years before we're done. All right. Uh, I'm aging as we go. No, I'm, I'm kidding. It, this, is, this has been very helpful. And that's one of the things I think people have come to appreciate about you, Ken. And I'll give a plug for your book, Classic Christian Thinkers here. You, you really uh, get down to the nub of it. You, you, there's a lot of ground to cover. And we talk about uh, certain things uh, on these podcasts that uh, it's tend to come up in contemporary apologetic settings, but they've been there all along. That's a point you made in the last podcast is the, a lot of these have been there all along, and we have a lot to learn from uh, the thinkers of the past. So that's one of the things that I've come to appreciate about you. And if you read classic Christian thinkers, you get uh, some real good nuggets there. Uh, so uh, I highly recommend the book. I know, Dave, you do as well. So yes. if you haven't read it, uh, please read that one. But go ahead, Ken. Well, I, you know, one of the things uh, in our own time, um, you know, you have evangelicals who sometimes uh, leave the faith and become Catholic or they become Orthodox. And uh, it's always interesting to kind of hear their testimony. You know, why, what was it that they, um, what was it that made them make that big change in their own, you know, church affiliation, etc. Uh, one of the things that some of my friends who have either become Catholic or Orthodox have said to me is that, you know, they were looking for more history. They were looking for a, a deeper uh, faith. They were looking for something that had deeper roots. Um, and so in many ways, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to help my evangelical friends to appreciate that um, that that historical uh, lineage that those historical details are available to evangelicals, and uh, you know there there are certainly things that evangelicals can learn from Orthodox and Catholics. 
I also think that those two branches of Christendom can learn from evangelical or Protestantism. So what I want to talk about, first of all, is I want to introduce this idea to our listeners. And it's the idea that out of the church fathers, there's a cream of the crop that arose. And those are called doctors of the church. And I, I want to tell you a little bit about what that means. Um, largely, there are, are three requirements that have to be fulfilled by a person in order for them to merit this very exalted title of doctor of the Catholic Church. Now, at that point, I don't even mean Roman Catholic per se, but someone who is part of the universal. I mean, this would include, we're going to include eight individuals and four of them are in the Orthodox tradition. They're in the Greek or Eastern tradition. But here's the three requirements uh, that the church kind of placed on, uh, that you had to fulfill to become a doctor of the church. One, a holiness that's truly outstanding, even among members who are saints. Now, many of our evangelicals may feel like, you know, why do, why do people get these titles like, you know, St. Augustine or St. Athanasius or, you know, uh, St. Jerome? Well, in the in the Catholic and Orthodox tradition, there is what is called sainthood. Now, that kind of conflicts some in the minds of evangelicals, because when we read the New Testament, it seems like, to some degree, all Christians are known as saints. But these are individuals that uh, have, have actually been, uh, you know, praised by the church and given a particular status of sainthood. So to be a doctor of the church, a holiness that's outstanding even among other saints, two, a depth of doctrinal insight, a depth of doctrinal insight, and third, an extensive body of writings which the church can recommend as an expression of authentic, life-giving Christian Catholic tradition. So again, three, a deep holiness of life, a depth of doctrinal understanding, uh, and then thirdly, a deep contribution in terms of what has been what has been written. And so, if we talk about these uh, these fathers who have become doctors of the church, we can call them ecumenical fathers. Um, for example, if you were to go to the Vatican you would see bronze statues of several of these eight particular uh, individuals that I'm gonna introduce. If you went to St. Peter's Basilica, uh, some of these doctors of the church are, are, uh, are there in, in art uh, to kind of exemplify that the church is built upon uh, these particular fathers. And let me introduce them to you. Um, I'll talk about four that come out of the West, out of the Latin-speaking church. Then I'll talk about four that come out of the Eastern Greek-speaking church. Uh, and then we'll look at some details uh, about their life and what they've accomplished. In terms of the, uh, the four that come out of the Latin Roman church, uh, it would be St. Ambrose. Uh, some of you will remember that Ambrose was the one who baptized St. Augustine. Uh, Ambrose was Augustine's mentor. Um, and Ambrose's dates are 340 to 397. So he overlaps with uh, a couple individuals. Uh, St. Jerome, he is another uh, doctor of the church. By the way, the greatest ancient, the greatest uh, biblical translator in the history of Christianity, arguably. He translated the Vulgate, which is a, the official Latin translation that had such significance. Jerome was a contemporary with Augustine. His date's 345 to 420. Then, of course, St. Augustine um, dates 354 to 430, the author of the Confessions, uh, some would say that Augustine influences not only the Catholic thinkers of the Middle Ages, but the Protestants of the Reformation era. 
And then a, a fourth one, St. Gregory the Great. He was uh, uh, early Pope. His dates are 540 to, to 640, so 604. So those are the four Latin speaking doctors of the church, Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine, Gregory the Great. And Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine are contemporaries. Their dates overlap with each other. So you have three of those in a very close proximity. Gregory comes a bit later. Now, the, the other four, they come from the Greek-speaking church. They would be associated not only with the Catholic church, but maybe even more with the what became the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, or even the Coptic tradition, the Oriental Orthodox. The four ecumenical fathers of the East would include St. Athanasius, to 295, again, these dates are approximate to 373. Athanasius, of course, the great defender of the deity of Christ, battled the, the Arian heresy. Then St. Basil the Great dates 330 to 379. Basil has an association with the two great Gregory theologians. Uh, in fact, our, our third doctor of the, of the Eastern Church is Gregory of Nanzianzen. Uh, his date's 330 to 390. Uh, Gregory of Nanzianzen, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil the Great they are a powerful force known as the Cappadocian Fathers, and I want to talk more about them, uh, but their dates are very close, again, to, uh, to people like uh, Ambrose and, and Jerome and St. Augustine. And then you have a fourth individual, John Chrysostom, whose dates are 345 to 407. So these are the doctor, these are the great doctors of the church. Uh, again, they're designated as being that in light of their, their personal devotion to Christ, their, their deep doctrinal insight, and their body of writings that would give direction uh, to the church. So these are kind of the cream of the crop, if you will. Uh, and I can tell you that, um, you know, when Catholics and Orthodox uh, you know, present their ideas, there are a lot of quotations that are coming from these particular church fathers. Uh, Joe, let's go to you. Yeah, a, a question that uh, has come to my mind uh, is, it wasn't until uh, 1054, if I got that right, that there was the Great Schism. So when you say Western Church and Eastern Church, is this a uh, Kind of a geographical uh, uh, designation or language, or how how do we distinguish uh, between the two churches at this point? Yeah, that's a great great question and a very important one. So it's not until the 11th century. It's not until 1054 that you have the schism, where the West and the East divide, and uh, then they take more on the idea of the Western Church being Catholic the Eastern Church being Orthodox. Of course, a lot of those ideas start much earlier. I mean, there are differences between the two. They, they come out of, uh, you know, different empires, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire in the East. They speak different languages, Greek in the East, Latin in the West. Uh, you know, they, they take on certain characteristics but up until 1054, it is, it is seen as the, the Christian church. It is seen as uh, the universal church. And, uh, and yet there are these individuals. I mean, for example, St. Augustine's not well known in the East. I mean, Augustine may be the most influential Christian theologian outside the New Testament, but he doesn't have a lot of admirers in the East. Um, you know, they are much more enamored by Chrysostom. They're much more enamored by the Cappadocian fathers. So uh, you already have a divide, but uh, we'll talk a bit more about that schism of 1054 in a few minutes. Okay, good. 
Well, let me let me kind of give you a rundown on these church doctors, if you will. Um, let's start with the Western Church. Uh, Ambrose. Uh, Ambrose is significant for many reasons. Um, he's considered one of the great orators, one of the great speakers. That's what drew Augustine to Ambrose. Remember, Augustine was a rhetorician. His training wasn't so much in philosophy. He was a rhetorician. He heard about this bishop of Milan named Ambrose, who was a remarkable orator. And so Augustine first went to hear him, not because he was interested in Ambrose's Christianity, but he wanted to, he wanted to see that he wanted to see how good a speaker this guy really was. And Augustine became very impressed with him. Um, he was a real authority of classical literature. In fact, Ambrose uh, was able to take some of the Greek manuscripts and translate them into Latin so the Western church could, could read some of these fathers. He also uh, battled the Arian heresy. He was very strong in standing up to the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, the Romans tried to manipulate him. They tried to push him around, and Ambrose wouldn't have it. Uh, and so when Augustine saw Ambrose, he thought, man, this person is learned. He has a lot of courage, and he's celibate. This is a guy who actually has some, some morals about him. Uh, now, now, Ambrose also is influential for his own allegorical interpretation of Scripture. In the, among the church fathers, interpreting Scripture allegorically was important to some of them. Uh, less important today, but more important in, in those days. So that's a little, little sketch about Ambrose. How about Jerome? Well, Jerome was a desert father. Uh, he was a monastic uh, father living uh, out in the desert, and he became uh, a great biblical translator. He's one of the few people in the ancient world who actually had facility with Hebrew and Greek and Latin. He was a linguist. Um, one, of the, one of the great uh, thinkers, he studied under uh, Gregory of Nanzians. So he knew uh, some of the fathers in the eastern part of the world. And of course, his lifelong work was the translation of the Vulgate. Um, because what you have in, in many ways, you know, the Old Testament, uh, uh, Jerome said, look, you need to read the Bible in the biblical languages. And uh, he was able to do that. He also is known by the great quote. I, re I remember the first time I heard this quote, I, I was a Catholic at the time. I was in my early 20s. And I was talking with a Catholic friend about why I love scripture so much. And my Catholic friend quoted Jerome in saying that ignorance of the Bible is ignorance of Christ. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, that's a, that's a great statement. Well, uh, Jerome knew uh, St. Augustine. In fact, they had, some, uh, they had some letters back and forth. And sometimes they would even kind of, uh, uh, you know, tease each other. Uh, St. Augustine would write to Jerome and say, oh, you know, you're a great biblical scholar and I'm just a lowly bishop, you know, <laughs> and uh, they would kind of jab at one another. By the way, Jerome said that the reason he likes studying and translating the biblical manuscripts is he said he struggled with lustful thoughts and that helped him to, to keep his mind on things that were, were sacred. So these are kind of little details about some of these individuals. Well, St. Augustine, you've heard me talk a lot about St. Augustine. He's my favorite Christian thinker. Say just a little bit, author of some of the very significant books within Christianity, The Confessions, which is his, his autobiography. Uh, then The City of God, which really kind of is a, is a philosophy of history looking at uh, the city of man versus the city of God, then, it, then a very detailed book on the Trinity, uh, Augustine's influence. Uh, many people, not, not everyone, and certainly not people in the East, but many people in the West would say that Augustine is kind of 
the cream of the crop among the church fathers. Um, then we have Gregory the First, who is Gregory the Great. I mean, that's pretty cool when your name is Gregory the Great. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, you sometimes see athletes, Michael Jordan, the Great One. You know, that they have these kind of qualities and characteristics of greatness. Well, Gregory is well known for reforming the church, reforming liturgy in the church, uh, how the church went about its worship. He's also kind of uh, developed what we would call what would become the medieval papacy, papacy. So, Joe, with Gregory, you start to see a very strong view of the pope, authoritative view. And, uh, you know, again, his, his dates are going to uh, uh, take us to, uh, you know, 500. So some of, some of these ideas about the papacy grew and evolved and changed. And I think it's a mistake sometimes to think that, you know, all of the church fathers believe that right from the apostolic fathers. Uh, these ideas developed, but Gregory was a very influential person and defended the authority of, uh, of the papacy. So that's the, that's the four Western church doctors. Then you have the Eastern uh, fathers, Athanasius. We've talked quite a bit about him. He was at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, he came from a Christian family out of Alexandria. He spent 50 years battling the Arian heresy. Uh, Arius said that, uh, that the son was a creature uh, and not equal to the father, and, and Athanasius battled that. He was exiled five different times, written some classic books on the incarnation. In fact, there's one one translation of On the Incarnation, where C.S. Lewis writes the introduction, that's available on Amazon. Uh, terrific. Uh, Lewis calls it a masterpiece of theology. If Lewis said that, uh, you know that it, it's got some remarkable content. Then you have Gregory of Nanzianzus, uh, great church father regarding the Trinity. In fact, all the Cappadocian fathers, the two Gregories, along with uh, Basil, they focused on the doctrine of the Trinity. And here's, here's kind of an insightful point. Um, you know, as the, as the teaching of the Trinity began to develop, and as the great fathers of the church hammered out uh, this doctrine, um, in the East, there was more emphasis upon the, the diversity of the persons. In the West, there was more of an emphasis upon the unity of God's nature. And uh, there are people who take Augustine to task and say that his focus on the unity of nature uh, doesn't give some of the, the, uh, the, the fruitfulness of the diversity of personhoods. I would say that the, uh, the Cappadocian fathers, again, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nanzianzus, uh, and Basil the Great, they're about as good as they come in terms of the Eastern fathers. And probably the only one that could compete with them would be Athanasius and Chrysostom. So uh, emphasizing the, the Trinity, Basil the Great, again, another great thinker on the Trinity. He writes, defends the Trinity, probably does as much for monasticism as almost anybody. And again, talks about the Trinity in terms of three persons. And then John Chrysostom, the fourth uh, father doctor of the church in the East, known as Golden Mouth. He was <laughs> considered one of the great speakers. It'd be interesting to see pit him and Ambrose uh, and hear them preach uh, about the truth of Christianity. Chrysostom is a very, how would I put it? I, I would say in some ways Chrysostom is thought of as kind of the Augustine of the East. That's how, that's the kind of prestige that that he has. Well, let me, let me pause and see if there is anything you want to jump in or take me to task on or ask. Uh, just kind of a, a question when uh, these eight are referred to as 
doctors of the church, you, you gave the three criteria earlier. Um, but does that mean that they were, um, uh, how do I, how do I say it? When, when, when they would, uh, speak or write or whatever, did people immediately recognize that, oh, this is one of the doctors of the church here, so we, we need to pay heed. I mean, I think of Athanasius, you mentioned that he battled Arianism for 50 years. That right there puts him in doctor status. <laughs> it's like, I mean, all that time, you know, to battle such a major error. Um, so how do, how do we look at that? How did they look at it back then? Let me uh, let me just put in a little different. I I have the same question, but did these people retain or obtain that title when they were living, or was it something that was attached to them later after even some of them died? Great great questions. I I think it's best to think of these titles as coming in retrospect. Uh, that is, some of them at the time they were controversial. I mean, uh, some of them had more prestige when they were living. Probably at the end of Augustine's life, he may have been one of the most well-known Christians within Christendom. But, you know, Athanasius got exiled five times. I mean, there were bishops who didn't agree with him. So this, this honorific title of doctor of the church came later, sometimes much later. So while they're living and while they're writing and debating, uh, they could be seen as quite controversial. And again, they wouldn't receive that title until their extensive writings had been studied by the church and said, well, you know, Augustine writes uh, in such a way that it represents kind of traditional Christianity or Catholic Christianity. And it was only later that people looked back to Athanasius and said, wow, we didn't know how heroic he really was. I think we should understand all of this as coming later. Mm -hmm. And as, as the church began to reflect, uh, it acknowledged that, wow, we, we've had these heavyweights and uh, they kind of represent that particular era. But while they were living, uh, you know, they were part of the church militant. They were fighting the battle. And uh, they were sometimes, uh, you know, they had, uh, they had people critiquing them. And uh, so, yeah, that's the way I would respond mm -hmm. to that very good question. Yeah. Okay, can we take a little, can we dip our toe in the Middle Ages? Uh, mm -hmm. We'll... We'll step now beyond a little bit beyond the church fathers and kind of step into the Middle Ages. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to give the Middle Ages the dates 500 to 1500. So uh, that's a thousand year period. Um, uh, you know, this would be kind of the end of the ancient period, and it'll end before the Reformation era. So that's that period between the ancient world and the Reformation world, we'll call the Middle Ages or the medieval period. Uh, now, again, these dates are, you know, they're artificial, but I, I, I'm pretty comfortable with giving that date. And it's certainly a memorable date, that thousand year period. Well, uh, we need to talk a little bit about people that are going to kind of overlap. That is, there are going to be people that will link the ancient world or the church fathers into the Middle Ages. They'll kind of be stepping stones, if you will. And I want to mention three of them. Uh, St. Augustine is certainly one of the people that, remember, Augustine lives in the, um, the latter part of the ancient world. And uh, he, he kind of is an overlapping individual from the end of the Roman Empire into the Middle Ages. His books were very popular uh, by people who wrote in the Middle Ages. Another person that would be the early part of the Middle Ages and would kind of be that stepping stone would be Boethius. Uh, he was uh, a unique Christian philosopher he knew a lot about Aristotle and Plato. In fact, uh, until about the 12th century, uh, 
almost until the time of Thomas Aquinas, the only thing that the Western church knew about Aristotle largely came through Boethius. And, and that's, that's an important point. I mean, remember that part of the reason these two branches of Christendom divided is they spoke different languages. They were in different parts of the world. They were moving in kind of different direction. And a lot of Latin thinkers had never read Greek thinkers. And um, again, one, one, of the, one of the significant contributions is people who can kind of bring some of those early Greek writers uh, to, to the Latin West. Well, Boethius is one of those people. Another is Pseudo-Dionysus, again, a person in, in a, a significant position of, of speaking about the Christian faith. So th those would be kind of my overlappers, Augustine, Boethius, and Pseudo-Dionysus. Let me then move to um, four more thinkers, and then I want to talk about some of the events of the Middle Ages. I want to talk about the Crusades. I want to talk particularly about the, the Great Schism of 1054. But let's talk about four uh, thinkers of the Middle Ages. And again, I'm being very selective here. There are many more, many more theologians and philosophers that I could talk about. But I want to talk about Anselm, Abelard, Aquinas, and Bonaventure. So three A's and a B there. Anselm, Abelard, Aquinas, and Bonaventure. Uh, Anselm Aquinas, uh, I write about in my book, Classic Christian Thinkers. I also have an article on the RTB website about Bonaventure and Abelard. So some of these people who didn't make it into Classic Christian Thinkers, they, I, I have articles on the Reflections blog site that talk a little bit about them. But uh, Anselm is a very significant person. Some would view him as kind of the the founding father of scholasticism. Uh, scholasticism is a very significant apologetic movement. Uh, the idea that they could challenge unbelief, well, what would be the unbelief of the period? Well, you have Islam and you have people who, are, who have not embraced Christianity. So you still have Greek skeptical thinkers, um, Roman skeptical thinkers. Uh, Anselm, of course, uh, develops the ontological argument. Uh, I think he got help from Augustine on that, but it is a unique argument. It, it is essentially an argument that says if you reflect about the attributes of God, you can come to the conviction that God exists. Uh, and I, I kind of take that argument and kind of put it in as friendly terms as I can. I'm not, I'm not sure anybody can write about the ontological argument uh, as simply as you'd like. It, there's a complexity to it. But Anselm also has a view of the atonement, a satisfaction theory, right? Remember, uh, cur deus homo, why the God-man? What, what was it that Jesus did that Adam didn't? Jesus provided uh, satisfaction. Peter Abelard is another individual, dates 1079 to 1142. He's a logician. Uh, he makes real contributions in advancement to the study of logic. He writes about the Trinity. He's a controversial figure. He has a, he's supposed to be a monk and he has a love affair. And so he gets in trouble with the church, not only because of some of his theological ideas, but because of the lack of virtue. But he has, uh, he has a very interesting uh, relationship that uh, he's well known for. So again, a controversial figure, not, not, always, not always the most reliable in terms of his theological ideas. Then, of course, Thomas Aquinas. Um, I think when it comes to people like Augustine and Aquinas, it's, it's hard to exaggerate them. Their, their accomplishments are so significant that, it, that it's hard to, um, you know, uh, say more of them. Aquinas is the most influential Catholic philosopher, not only in the Middle Ages, but, but of all times. In fact, 
the Catholic Church later says that their whole church is in the spirit of, of Thomas Aquinas. He develops the five ways, the five arguments for the existence of God. His great books uh, are uh, Summa Theologiae and Summa Contra Gentilis, which he largely is critiquing the, um, the Islamic expansion. Um, Thomas has lots of ideas. Uh, the language of God is analogical. Uh, late in his life, um, and Thomas, of course, was born in a castle. He's three years old, and he's asking the monks, what is God? Um, Thomas wants to become uh, a priest, and uh, his parents are reluctant because he wants to join a, a new order, the order of the preachers, the Dominicans, and uh, he has quite a, quite a difficult time with his parents early on, but uh, Thomas near the end of his life, and, and again, people said that he worked 18 hours a day for 40 years. Mm. Um, you know, he, was, he would often dictate to four uh, different writers to take notes for him. And, uh, you know, he didn't live very long. He lived 49 years. I mean, how did these people have short lifetimes and accomplish so much? Well, they didn't have television. That certainly helps. Um, but Thomas had a vision uh, near the end of his life. And he said that compared to what he saw, he didn't want to write anymore because he thought that what he wrote was straw compared to what he had seen. And so the Summa Theologiae, one of the great, maybe the greatest theological book in in Christian history was not completed. It's an amazing book. I've never made my way all the way through it. Uh, one of the things that makes it difficult is Thomas considers almost every possible objection to his idea before he even gets to his idea. He's kind of the perfect example of the golden rule of apologetics. And it's deep. Um, it is, uh, but it's also... Thomas is a unique person because he's clearly one of the brightest in Western civilization. And some people would say he might be the brightest of all time. Uh, he also is amazingly humble. And uh, that's another lesson we can learn from some of these people. You know, sometimes when you are an intellectual, when you're a person, a bookish person, a learned person, Maybe you have advanced degrees, you know. You, you start to you start to uh, struggle with narcissism, and you know you, you're filled up with yourself. And uh, uh, Thomas is refreshing in how smart he is, but he he's he's not uh, he's not he's not obsessed with self. And I, I love that about Thomas. Another thinker is Bonaventure. He lives very similar times to Thomas. His dates are 1217 to 1274. He's a Franciscan father. And uh, he takes a little bit of a different tact than Thomas. And uh, he has a, as well kind of, uh, he's a bit more of a charismatic, I think, than, than Thomas. And I remember Bonaventure, uh, the first time I heard uh, the University of St. Bonaventure was in 1970 when the UCLA Bruins played uh, St. Bonaventure in the NCAA finals. And I thought, who in the world is Bonaventure? Uh, it was only later that I discovered he was one of the great uh, medieval uh, Catholic philosophers. So those are four very big thinkers uh, that that span a very long period. And there, there are plenty of names I, I just can't mention in this kind of uh, crash course uh, approach to Christian history, if you will. But before I leave them, I wanna give you a chance to maybe ask a question and then we'll look at some of the great events of the Middle Ages. Sounds good, go for it. Okay. Uh, I think there are some things we definitely have to talk about. Um, one of the great events in the Middle Ages, uh, great and tragic, 
great and uh, controversial is, of course, the Crusades. And, uh, you know, some of the atheists, uh, particularly the new atheists, they really, they like to, they like to portray the Crusades as this was the, this was the Catholic Church that was attacking the poor victim uh, Muslims and taking their land and taking their money and abusing them. And th this was kind of an evil uh, religious war. Uh, all I can tell you is there are a number of scholars, contemporary scholars who have looked back at the Crusades and they've come to a very different viewpoint. Uh, there's a number of them that I write about in my book, uh, Christianity Cross-Examined, who say that the Crusades were not about, uh, you know, taking land, taking money, exploiting people, that they were just wars. That if the, if the Crusaders had not fought, the expansion of Islam would have taken all of Europe. And so the initial uh, crusades were to take back Christian cities uh, that had been dominated by Muslims. And uh, again, you wanna read about that particular period because there are plenty of people who are not Christian who like to paint Christian history and exaggerate the evils. I'm not saying the crusades were always good, were they, were they successful? Probably in, in a limited way. But again, uh, I think we do know that Islam has a long history of dominating uh, and, and taking land from other individuals, other religions. And I see the Crusades as a just war. Just war theory is the idea that you only fight wars that are just and you must fight those wars in a just manner. And I think in large measure, the Crusades were Christian just wars. Now, another great event of the Middle Ages, of course, is known as the Great Schism of 1054. And, um, you know, that, that's where we begin to see the uh, development of the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. And in my book, Classic uh, uh, Christianity cross-examined. I have uh, I have some discussions of this particular period, and um, I even have uh, some outlines, some tables, and I, I want to read a little bit of that uh, to you. Um, on page, uh, this is this is chapter eleven, uh, entitled "Isn't Christendom Hopelessly Divided?" Uh, and I have on page 195 a, a chart, uh, and I kind of put side-by-side -side differences. Uh, there were differences uh, in the names of these churches, the designations. The Eastern Church uh, be, took on the name the Orthodox Church. And of course, Orthodox, right doctrine, right glory, right? Um, in the Western church, it was called the Catholic church. Catholic means universal or whole. That's another translation of, of the word Catholic. They had different domains. The Eastern church was in the Byzantine empire. In the Eastern world, the, the Catholic uh, was in the Holy Roman empire. So you've got political differences. You have differences of, of, uh, uh, you know, political ide ideation. Then you have authority. Uh, one of the major differences between the Orthodox and the Catholics, the Orthodox say that the Bishop of Rome, he's considered first among equals. That is the Orthodox Church is made up of a number of national churches, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. Um, and they have patriarchs who are kind of leaders of their churches. They were willing to say that the Bishop of Rome or the Pope, he may be the first among equals, but he is among equals. And of course, uh, starting with Gregory and moving forward, the Bishop of Rome said, no, uh, the Pope is, he's supreme over the entire church. Um, 
there there is of course a a, a funny little cartoon um, makes its way on the web, but it had uh, it had uh, I, I think uh, I I think it was I think it was Benedict Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, and he was talking to one of the the, the patriarchs of Constantinople, and. Um, and the joke was that I think even Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants can all laugh at the the uh, Benedict says, "What should I give up for Lent?" And uh, uh, the the patriarch says, uh, "You know, how about giving up the the uh, the uh, theoloque with the idea that the Father, the the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son?" Uh, a little theological humor, but I I thought it was pretty funny. This, of course, leads us to the, one of the major debates about the Trinity. Uh, in the Eastern Church, the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father alone. Whereas in the West, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The theoloque, right? The Father and the Son. Uh, images, uh, the Eastern Church, Orthodox Church, they utilize icons. These are these remarkable masterpiece of paintings done by some of the great artists in church history of the Virgin Mary, of the Trinity, of the saints. And so the Eastern church is a very visual church. These icons are intended to help you visualize heavenly realities. The Catholic church uh, uses statues and I remember as a young boy, um, baptized at St. Athanasius Parish in Long Beach, California, I remember sitting in the pew with my parents looking up at a statue of Jesus. And I thought, whoa, this is action adventure. There's a lot of blood. Uh, and I, I remember discerning to myself when I was just a small child, probably four five years old, I thought, well, there's a couple things I know. This guy suffered a lot, and I know he's really important. That, that was about all I knew, uh, but I think I got them both right. He <laughs> suffered a lot, and he was really an important person. Well, um, in the Catholic Church, you have statues, and I might say that Protestants tend to be leery of both. Uh, some would argue in the Protestant church, you don't have a lot of art. Uh, Calvin thought, there's a famous quotation from Calvin, that the human mind is an idolatry factory. Uh, it's just ready to go off at any moment. In the, in the Protestant churches, you have hymns, you have music. That's largely, it's an audio church as opposed to a visual church. Language and, and location, the, the Eastern Church is Greek, it's Oriental, it's Eastern, it's Asian. The Western Church is Latin, Occidental, Western, European. You know, I probably never gave enough consideration to the idea that some of the major divisions within Christendom were at least in part, both political and economic. I'm not sure Luther could have done what he did had it not been for the support that he got from kings and because some of the controversies were economic and uh, they were able to stand with Luther, Luther, uh, with, with Luther I don't wanna call him Lucifer, um, with Luther um, and my point there is they probably were standing more against the Catholic Church and the authority of the Catholic Church. But certainly there are economic and political differences between the Eastern and Western churches. Then the clergy, the lower clergy in the Eastern Church, they can marry before their final vows. So you can have married priests in Orthodoxy. Uh, and of course, you have celibacy in, in the Catholic Church. Uh, the priests are are celibate. So those are, uh, you know, that's a major, that's a major division within Christendom. Now, I want to say just a, a couple things if I could about that division. Um, 
you know, I, I, uh, I, I, um, I like to promote unity. I, um, I, whenever I talk to Christians, I insist on beginning where, where do we agree? And I won't debate another Christian about Christian doctrinal differences until we talk about where we agree. And I do that for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm a, I'm a peacemaker. Uh, I, I think that's just part of my nature. But I also do it because I think if you start with where you agree, it, it gives the differences a context. Because sometimes Christians can seem like they just disagree about everything. But then when you lay out where we agree, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm actually talking to a brother in Christ here. Or I'm talking to somebody who, even if I don't think they're a brother in Christ, wow, they they believe a lot of things that I believe. You know, I wonder, what if the leaders of both of these churches, both Orthodox Catholic, both East and West, what, what if the Pope had been more humble? What if uh, the East had strived to, you know, to hang with them, to, 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 to stay together? Um, now, you, you could also say, though, that maybe it was inevitable, maybe it was necessary. I remember, you know, Hugh Ross said, you know, Ken, sometimes uh, having differences actually strengthens both sides, you know, that you have differing viewpoints and they kind of bounce off each other and they strengthen each other. I, I personally think that the Protestant Reformation helped the Catholic Church. Um, I think the Catholic Church admitted that their church was in need of reform and renewal. Now, they didn't think it needed as much as Luther thought it needed. But, you know, some people would suggest that maybe these denominational differences or branches of Christendom are not as harmful. I, I would only say that in John 17... I mean, Jesus says he prays that his church will be one. Now, Jesus's prayers are answered. Um, but when will that prayer be answered? Will it, will it be in, in history? Will it be in the time-space world? Or does it wait an eschatological unity? Now, of course, there are some people who don't think that these issues can be mended. Uh, there are some people that think that, you know, they are, uh, there are differences that they're just too stark, they're too strong. Um, in that case, if that is indeed the case, then, then I think we still can have connections with one another. I mean, I would like to see Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox stand up for the right to life. I, I'd like to see Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox stand up and stand against uh, human trafficking that happens in the world. Um, you know, Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox, we all believe in the image of God. So there are many areas that I think that we can be allies. Um, and I think that that would, you know, that would, that would help. Uh, but guys, that's kind of the thousand year period there in the middle ages um now the the middle ages of course uh what comes right at the top of that you have the renaissance which is kind of a rebirth of greco-roman learning some people would say the middle ages were the dark ages i think that's often misunderstood i think when it's described as the dark ages what we mean is that the learning of the Greco-Roman world was eclipsed, but it doesn't mean that the Middle Ages was without a vibrant uh, intellectual cultural force. I mean, I mean, if you think about the 1600s where you have the scientific revolution, all of that firepower comes out of the medieval universities and Dave, when you and I, when we took that trip with the RTB group to uh, Oxford, I mean, that, 
that school was birthed in the Middle Ages. So was the University of Paris. So was the University of Cambridge, uh, and numerous other schools. And so um, I think secularists don't often grant the vibrancy of the Middle Ages, uh, but it's a long period and a, and a very significant period. And there are people in that era that are very much people that we can learn from and, and should uh, reflect upon. Good stuff. Uh, Ken, for uh, people who might be, again, new to this podcast, and they're, they're thinking about these things, you know, Middle Ages, 500 to 1500, you, you touched on this. Um, they're, they're probably going to get some kind of uh, skeptic on the internet to say that uh, it wasn't until the scientific revolution that uh, we really started seeing the world the way we should. Uh, religion did its thing, if, if they were to put it charitably, it helped in some ways, but it, it largely did not contribute a whole lot. But it wasn't until the scientific revolution later that uh, the world really got better. Uh, I know that's a big question and um, one that you might want to save for another podcast, but maybe just, you know, in, in light of the two podcasts you just uh, did, how to, how to tackle that kind of thinking. Yeah, it's, it's very common. I mean, uh, in, among the new atheists, they, you know, they would say that um, it wasn't religion that birthed science. It wasn't Christianity that birthed science. It was the Enlightenment era, and they view the Enlightenment era as largely secular. Uh, so it's kind of breaking away from the church. And of course, the controversies with Galileo uh, probably add to that sentiment that, you know, the Catholic Church was kind of trying to hold on to power. Uh, here they are, you know, pushing around uh, one of the great scientists, Galileo. But Joe, it's deeper than that. Um, I mean, as I mentioned, uh, the university systems that really give rise to that amazing revolution. And, and I, you know, I will say I'm not a scientist. I uh, you know, only took two or three science courses in my college tour. Uh, I think the natural sciences are some, it's some of the greatest invention of human civilization. I think of the benefits that have come out of technology and medicine, uh, the wisdom and understanding that, that science has given us is, is truly amazing. Uh, the ability to use mathematics as a tool to explain the natural world, uh, you know, just really great stuff. But the early you know, the early scientists were almost to a person Christian, uh, sometimes Jewish, but often Christian. So the founding fathers of science were almost to a person, uh, affirmers of Christianity. The university systems that I mentioned, again, had significant uh, influence on this, this revolution. And, and Joe, even that first tier of the Enlightenment was largely religious people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only as the Enlightenment went further that it became secular. Now, now, having said all of that and having defended church history and having defended historical Christianity, you know, the reality is that that comment that Dave made when he read that book on church history by Bruce Shelley you know, that it's a mess. Um, you know, God has, uh, God has a messy church and he has very imperfect people and uh, the depth of their imperfection required the death of a savior. And so Christian history is not neat. Uh, it is, it, it does have some dark eras. There have been some things done that were immoral. Uh, and, but the good thing I think, Joe, is that when, when Christendom violates the principles of Christianity, uh, what's clear is what Christ stood for. 
and that there are times where the church has violated it rather than followed it. But I also think that Christianity gets, you know, it, it gets uh, exaggerated. The faults are exaggerated. Uh, I would appeal to people like Todd Holland, who wrote the book Dominion, who is an expert on the Greco-Roman world, who was an atheist, uh, studied through Western civilization. I think Todd Holland probably understands Christian theology as well as I do. He, he really is an amazing person. Even though he has a secular background, he has kind of an insider's knowledge of Christian ideas and doctrine. He said, look, I'm not a, when it comes to my ethics, I'm not Greek or Roman, I'm Christian. Uh, and there have been others, uh, you know, uh, Peterson, Murray, these are individuals that kind of come from skeptical backgrounds who've said Christianity has been done a lot of good. And the reason I do these programs, I mean, you know, RTB is largely a faith science apologetic organization. I'm just kind of coming along and trying to help flesh out that faith side and to, to try to show that, um, you know, we, uh, there are apologetic truths in church history that I think are, are very significant and, uh, and very valuable. I think, you know, philosophy teaches us to think worldviewishly. And I think when we look back at these periods, Joe, we, we find real people, they're sinners, they're sinners saved by grace. Uh, they're people who do great things. They're people who do bad things. Uh, but that is the Lord's church. And, uh, you know, I sometimes am not always happy with the people I bump into in Christian churches. But then I look in the mirror and I say, you know, I belong there right with them. I'm the same way. I am a broken, fallen person. And, uh, you know, sanctification is a long road. But mm -hmm. I, think the, I think evangelicals learning more about church history can only be a good thing. Mm. Yeah. Good, good point to end on there, unless you have something, Dave. Uh, no, it sounds good. I just was reflecting on the fact that I'm a doctor and I belong to a church, but I'm definitely not a doctor of the church. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like well, that careful logic there, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, uh, Ken, for these two podcasts. I, I sure enjoyed listening, getting the uh, ride through church history here. Um, what was I going to say? Something about, um, oh, you, you write about a couple of things you just brought up in your book, uh, uh, Classic Christian Thinkers. Uh, one is the hypocrisy argument. You have a chapter dealing with that and also about the idea of science negating belief in God. I think you have two or three chapters on science near the beginning of that book. Christianity cross-examined. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, that, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. Thank and I, I think those would be really good recommendations for these podcasts, Classic Christian Thinkers. I address nine uh, very yeah. remarkable thinkers. And then Christianity cross-examined covers some of these issues about yeah. science, about hypocrisy. Yeah. Hmm. Great. So we recommend those. Ken is very readable, as, as many of you have uh, come to learn. And uh, here are a couple of people uh, amening your books. Uh, Ken, here's a, another book we didn't talk about on this podcast. A God Among Sages is an excellent book and a good reference source that I have used more than once. Uh, Mike Grebner, a scientist. So thank you for that, Mike. Uh, let me find one more comment here at the end. Uh, let's see, here's one. Ken, I just ordered your latest book. Because I read with magnifiers, uh, I am highly selective about what books I purchase. I have more Ken Samples books in my limited library than any other author. God has, <laughs> God has used you in a powerful way to bless the lives of countless people. Roger Price. Well, how do you feel about that, Ken? <laughs> uh, that's, I know Roger is a very sharp thoughtful person. And so mm. I for sure appreciate those kind remarks. Yeah, great. 
Thank you again. And please uh, keep those comments coming. We sure appreciate them. And we'll be glad to give you a shout out here on the podcast. Uh, you can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. And you can also reach him uh, via Facebook or by commenting on reflections by Ken.wordpress.com, where Ken uh, writes a blog post every other week. So thanks for your comments. We appreciate that. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast and find straight thinking on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts, you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.